0: Good
1: afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And some of the dust has settled since last week's election. Yesterday, Green Party leader Anime Paul resigned, pulling no punches about the appalling way she was treated during her tenure. And meanwhile, the knives are out for Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader. Though in the last week, there has been some vocal support for him. This week, he'll meet with his caucus and they will decide whether to trigger a leadership review. Great news. The two Michaels finally arrived home this weekend. And since then, we heard one very implausible explanation from our ambassador to the U.S. about how that happened and a story the Globe and Mail broke this morning, which says that U.S. President Joe Biden personally intervened and made it clear that releasing the two Michaels was a condition for a deal involving Meng Wanzhou. So what do you think, people? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Bob Richardson, Legal Strat- Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel at National Public Relations. Hi, everyone. Good, Good afternoon. Alrighty. So let us begin with the resignation of Annamie Paul. I mean, Karen, I don't know how much more there is to say about it. No, I, you know, she, I don't think she really had a choice. I mean,
2: if she even had, you know, and she said she had no desire to continue on in the role and, um, which was good because I think that they just, she would not have been able to, to have any legitimacy in the role. Unfortunately, finishing fourth place and clearly, without the support of her own party it makes it impossible for a leader to lead. So she did the only thing she could.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think um, Do you think that a lot of that was her fault or was it because of that incredible sniping that was all played out in public? Yeah, I mean,
2: I, I think that, you know, with these kinds of things, like, there's enough fault to go around. I mean, the one thing that I guess, you know, in hindsight, uh, the opportunity she did not take advantage of is stacking uh, some of the party with her own supporters. Um, you know, that they, uh, the the national federal organizing mm-hmm. committee. That I mean, that that should have been sort of day one to you know make sure her people were in in a position where they could support her, and uh, and then again to like have an implosion on an issue that's so immaterial to the Green Party's core. Is a bit shocking as that that all played out. And you you sort of wonder was it, you know, was it just looking for any opportunity to to take a a swipe at her? Because Israel is not, how does that relate to the Green Party?
1: (laughs) Well,
0: all of
2: it was just so bizarre. And, you know, whether, she, you know, she was, you know, right in her position to say what she said, but I don't understand why the Green Party would blow itself up over it, particularly at a time when climate change is actually rising to our collective consciousness as, a, as an actual issue like this really should have been uh, the Green Party's election.
3: Uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, uh, regarding the Israel problem, I mean, I think there is a, an anti-Semitism problem on the left, as there is on the far right. Mm -hmm. Not uh, on the center and it can express itself that way. But, um, you know, uh, several other people that I've interviewed, you know, talk about some parties, especially those who aren't in power, having a propensity to shoot themselves in the foot. Bob? Yeah.
4: Uh, yeah, look, I think she was treated appallingly. Do I think that she should have resigned? Yes. When you get 8% of the vote in your writing uh, and you get 2.3% nationally and previously you got 6.5, uh, those numbers indicate that you really should go down. She was treated appallingly. She was treated appallingly by her federal council and by Elizabeth May. Let's name some names here. Uh, uh, providing a federal leader, no funding, no staff. No national campaign is unacceptable. It's frankly, it's unheard of. So there, it, it only leads to, uh, some very clear conclusions that there was anti-Semitism at play here. There was racism at play here and there was misogyny here, uh, at play here too. And it's really too bad. I mean, the one good thing is I think it's exposed the, uh, the Greens for being a bit of a kook operation. Uh, <laughs> and they, uh, and they have, uh, They'll have some work to do to clean that up if they're going to be taken seriously as a national political voice again.
1: Well, uh, you know, on Elizabeth May, Annie Paul's executive assistant, you know, named names. And during the piece, uh, people were pointing at her like what she stepped down voluntarily. Like, Bob, do you have any explanation for her role in this? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know, I think
4: uh, she uh, didn't necessarily want to be the national leader anymore or knew she couldn't stay in the role because of her performance in the previous election. Uh, But uh, she didn't want to give up the power that, you know, within the Green Party either. Uh, That's the only logical conclusion here. And uh, and it was just not acceptable behavior. And this would not have gone on in, in any other reasonable political party. And she should be held to account. As should the Federal Council of the Green Party.
1: Yeah, it does. The whole thing uh, boggles the mind. And <clears throat> John, we've had a little more clarity about Aaron O'Toole's future. Uh now he has some more people coming out in support of him. Where do you think that is at? And what do you do you think his caucus will decide to trigger a review?
5: Well, let me also say too, Libby, just on the anime Paul <coughs> chapter, and and I totally agree with uh, with, with what Bob was saying <clears throat> regarding how the party handled it, and, and it kind of leads into into our discussion with Aaron O'Toole. But you know, most political parties, and those of us on the panel are, are well aware of this that there's always you know machinations that happen after every election when when a, a political party loses. In fact, in constitutions, they usually say that if you lose an election, there's a there's an automatic review vote at at, at the constitution or at a, at the next annual meeting of the members, which is the case with the federal conservatives in 2023. But with anime, Paul, what was so, um, uh, and, and Bob used the word appalling that I'd like to use as well, but what was so appalling was that it actually happened before and during the election. And that's not heard mm-hmm. of. Uh, you know, it's one, one thing to have it after the election, as, as you know, which is fair game, but to have it in the middle of the election or just before the election is kind of crazy. But with respect to Aaron O'Toole, um, you know, you know, people say there's knives. Or I say it's more like a box cutter than it is, than it is <laughs> <Yeah>. knives. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, you've yeah. got one, uh, you know, national counselor <clears throat> who claims that you know he thinks that Aaron O'Toole should step down, uh, and you know has about two thousand signatures on a petition that he's had now for the last week or so. But you've got heavyweight MPs like Michelle Rempel. Uh, and Gardner and others who are coming out, uh, and not least of which, of course, former Premier Mike Harris, who still wields a lot of influence uh, amongst Conservatives, both, nas- both nationally and provincially, who basically said, you know, this is nonsense. And and we just heard Brad Wall recently saying it as well. So you've got a lot of the, the, the party heavyweights coming out and basically saying this is crazy. I, I add my name to that list of people who think that it is just insane. Like, I think that, you know, Aaron O'Toole, uh, when he became leader during the pandemic, uh, you know was leader about a year before the election campaign at a time when all the focus is on leaders and, and prime ministers and premiers and not the opposition leaders uh, was not known and then certainly did it had a really positive effect during the election campaign to a point where you know he was was almost at par with the prime minister on the question of who makes the best prime minister so from that perspective. A lot of positives. Did he make some mistakes? Sure. Uh, And the first thing he did when he lost the election was said he was going to do a review. And I think that's an important part of our party, which is to sort of say what worked, what didn't work. But to have the leadership now, when you just spend an election campaign getting to know the leader, is just crazy. Uh, And I think that doesn't mean they won't do
1: it.
4: (laughs) I I, I think this is a lazy, media-driven story. I think there's very little substance to the story. There's very little substance among the caucus, very little substance among voters, very little substance among defeated candidates, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Every party has 15, 20, 25 percent of it will likely vote against a leader at any one time or another. I think this is lazy, and uh, I think it is uh, not a particularly accurate story.
1: Huh. Um, I have one question about something that Bert Chen, the guy who triggered this, uh, said, which really had me scratching my head. And it's kind of relevant in in uh, in relation to what what's happening now as we look at our relationship with China, among other things. He uh, said that that Aaron O'Toole's tough stance on China made people, Chinese Canadians, uncomfortable about voting for him. And I, I mean, I totally didn't get that. Is he suggesting that Chinese Canadians uh, or a majority of them uh, support this Chinese regime? Uh, do, does anybody have an answer for me? Well,
5: I, I would just say, Libby, that, that you know, that's, his take on it, and, you know, as, as a Chinese-Canadian, I think he's got his, his right to his opinion and, and his thought, but I certainly didn't get that. And and also, you know, Aaron Toole made being tough on China uh, a, a, an issue from the day he became leader. In fact, during the leadership contest, he was critis- critical of of, of the prime minister of the liberal government on being soft on China and not being tough enough. So, you know, the fact that he came out now and said that, you know, that he thought that this was this tough stand on China was, was a reflection of his bad result in the election campaign. I don't buy it. I think that anybody who knew Aaron O'Toole, who followed Politics followed his leadership, and followed his his uh, leading after he became leader of the party it was always tough on China, and basically said that we should be focusing on China in a way that Stephen Harper did, and others. So, others don't buy that at all. I think that that was just one of his points that he needed to make. Uh, you know, that, that he thought might have some resonance to party members. I, I'm totally with Bob on this. I think the media are, are wanting to make some sort of an issue out of this leadership thing. Uh, I think most Blame of the are media like, it's not going to happen and move on.
1: <laughs> uh, Karen, a total <laughs> hypothetical question. If, okay. if the two Michaels had come home a week or 10 days earlier, do you think that would have affected the outcome? Well, that's an interesting question.
2: Uh, you know, I, I think that... Um, Probably it would have been better for the Liberals if they had been able to make that happen. Uh, they, they, they're the only party that would have benefited from that. Um, but but I, again, I, I think that really, while people had an opinion on, on how the Michaels were detained and held for three years, I, I don't think it was water cooler discussion for people. I, I don't think that that was really top of, a top-of-mind issue for how people went to the polls.
1: Karen, there are people who uh, believe, people inside the Conservative Party, who think that Aaron O'Toole lost because he went to the center on everything except mandatory vaccination. And that's pretty top of mind these days. Yeah, I I think that
2: um, it it, it was an interesting uh, strategic positioning to have MPs, uh, people running for the Conservatives, not indicate their vaccine status. And you know at the at the outset of the campaign I thought he was on when it came to the federal uh, employees being mandatory having mandatory vaccination I mean really the reality is if someone no one was going to lose their job if they weren't vaccinated and I think he was right to say that but then he he, he, he shifted a little bit more than he needed to on that and making it um, you know so voluntary that I think people began to question okay well are the conservatives really anti vaxxers because you know at the when when all those protests were happening they were seen to be a fringe group and Aaron O'Toole was saying like that's not what you should be doing and then he kind of lost weight uh, on the vaccine issue and and i and i don't where it may have played well in parts of western canada it didn't play at well at all in central canada and now he's a aaron's in a bit of a rock and a hard place and he's got to figure out how to how to move the needle because If he's alienated his Western support and he hasn't made enough inroads in Ontario, then he's got to figure out how he's going to make that work. And I know that the boys think that this is a, you know, a a lazy election or a lazy media story about Aaron O'Toole, but I, I do think he is in a fight for the heart and soul of the party. And whether there's a leadership review that gets triggered, doesn't matter. He's still he still has to define what the Conservative Party of Canada stands for. And he's he's not done that journey yet, because right now it's not clear.
1: Well, th- I mean, that's the thing, uh, lazy or not, th- people who are very conservative uh, don't, like him and his policies, like bringing in a carbon tax, uh, like uh, accepting uh, gay marriage and gay rights. uh, And uh, he's, uh, you know, running as a red Tory. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a sizable proportion of the Conservative Party that is not that.
4: Well, uh, you know, as a liberal, I I hope that's the case. continues because we will perpetually be in office if that's the case. 80% 80% of us live in urban areas. Between Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, there are 115 seats. Uh, uh, we, the Liberal Party, 186. Uh, uh, CPC, the Conservative Party, 18. As long as that's allowed to continue, uh, they will not form a government in this country. So I think Mr. O'Toole is right to modernize his party. I think he's might, a right to move to, uh, to the center on, uh, on social issues. I think he could have had a much clearer econo- conservative economic message if I was him. Uh, I think he could have been clearer on public health issues without risking his party, like vaccines. I think they could stop pursuing idiocy, like more assault weapons on the streets um, and, and things like that. So it's time for the Conservative Party to grow up, figure out who it, it is and move on. They've got an opportunity to form government like anyone else. But if they continue to be trying to be all things to all people while being nothing to anybody, they'll find themselves continually in opposition.
1: Is that fair, John? Yeah, it is fair. That's the Liberal think, Party uh, of Canada. So-
5: you <laughs> know, it, 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 it is fair, I think, from the perspective of both what Karen was saying and, and what Bob was saying. Karen's point about, you know, the heart and soul of the party, I think it is an opportunity for us between now and the next election, when, whenever it could be, uh, for us to be able to reset, regroup on, on what worked, what didn't work, what policies were good, what policies were not good. Uh, you know, we had a policy conference uh, early in 2021. that led into, uh, into the election campaign. And a lot of those issues were seen in the policy document. A lot of them weren't, which is, which is normally the case. But I do think that there was a couple of issues during the election campaign that were clearly uh, in conflict, one was the gun issue, as as uh, both my uh, my friends have uh, alluded to, uh, and the other one was the vaccine. You know, the vaccine issue, where, where you know we were caught in a, in a situation where, you know, we could have been a lot harder on it. And uh, as much as you know, Aaron Tool was saying that he believed in it, he was vaccinated himself, and and wanted it. I think not going that extra that extra mile probably had some people guessing and and wondering what was going on. So I think those are issues that he's got the time now uh both he as leader and we as a party, to, to to kind of reset and readjust and be prepared for the next election campaign. But I do believe that that, you know, his adjustment to the center or center right uh, was a good call. I think most Canadians are in that boat. Uh, and, and from an urban perspective, and I live in an urban riding. in fact, I ran in a total Lakeshore. I know, as a Toronto Conservative, the challenges that we face in trying to get our voters to even look at the Conservative votes. And, and a lot of our members here, a lot of our candidates in Toronto did increase their vote share which was positive, but we needed to go the extra mile, and I think that's something that we're going to be looking at as a party.
1: It's uh, interesting, Karen, that uh, uh, Doug Ford at Queens Park has made a decision that now you have to be vaccinated just to even enter the building.
2: <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a good, pol- I think it's a good policy, but you know, again, um, it, it's just it's amazing. The premier, you know, he takes hard lines on certain positions, and then. But then it, it's like, you know, d- drag a horse to water and finally, finally he's drinking the water because it took, it took a long time to get the vaccine passport um, discussion started. And now it's, it's now going into Queens Park. You can't even get into the building unless you're vaccinated. And it's, I'm not sure Queens Park is considered a high risk environment. But you know, nonetheless, I, I <laughs> it, depends you <laughs> I it depends what
1: you mean by that. it depends what you
2: mean. A lot of hot air circulating around, I guess. <laughs> but you know, it's just, I think it's you know, I think it's all good. I shouldn't make fun. I think it's all good to have more places and less where vaccines are required because that will encourage more people to do what's necessary to help us get on the other side of this
1: thing. It, okay, turnings. So we've we've talked about Annamie Paul. We've talked about Aaron O'Toole. Is there a price that Justin Trudeau will have to pay for uh, putting us through all this and not getting his majority?
4: Bob? Uh, The answer is no, uh, because he's going to be the prime minister of the country and he's forming a government. And uh, I think there are lessons to learn. And I think I hope he and his colleagues learn some of those lessons. And I hope we have a good, long majority government. There's no reason. Minority.
1: You don't have a majority. I I,
4: I apologize. (laughs) Minority government uh, uh, that it should run for three to four years. But he has considerable support across the country, strong support in the Atlantic and in Quebec and in Ontario. He made some modest gains in the prairies. Record number of liberals elected in B.C. and took two out of three of the northern seats. So he's got a relatively representative government. He's got a low amount of the popular vote, but he also has three opponents that he has to run against on the centre-centre-left, which the other party doesn't. So uh, I think he's got a legitimate claim to uh, power for a long time. And and also, the other three parties uh, want to see action on childcare. They want to see action on housing. They want to see action on a number of issues. So you should be able to put together a pretty decent agenda for this parliament and for a good long period of time.
1: What about Jugmeet Singh? So throughout the piece, he was hailed as the most popular leader. Um, he, he ran a campaign basically saying anything good that came out in the pandemic was because of us. He's a huge social media star. They spent a fortune only on social media ads and, and he's basically back where he started from. Should he pay a price?
5: Well, I I would say, uh, Libby, and you asked a question earlier regarding the two Michaels if they were released uh, during the election campaign, what would have changed with with? The, with the, I think it would have had a, a, a profound effect on the election outcome. I think we could have actually probably gotten the prime minister a majority of government. I, I believe uh, if that happened, you know, early enough in the, in the election campaign. Um, so I do think that with, with with respect to John the the prime minister, I think with, when you, even if you lose, you, you, sorry, if you win and, and it's a minority government, you're the prime minister, so it's harder to displace of Prime Minister, whether or not he runs again in the next election will be will be for another topic. But with Jagmeet Singh, uh look you know he ran a solid campaign he was far more popular far he went into this election campaign far stronger than he did the last election campaign when he was uh, quite frankly fledgling and and sort of really made his mark uh, after the 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 uh the prime minister's uh, blackface uh scandal where where Jagmeet became much more known and respected and regarded by Canadians but he turned that momentum into the the last session of parliament and came into this election stronger and, and had a really good campaign. I used my the, the anecdote of my, my 19-year-old daughter, who voted for the first time, who, when I talked to her about who she was going to vote for, knowing that I was a full conservative, she goes, well, Dad, I really like Jagmeet Singh. He's all over TikTok and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, but, but obviously she, you know, she probably likely didn't vote for him. But she said a lot of her friends and others liked him as well. But whether or not they voted it was a different story. And the fact that Jagmeet can't break through in Quebec is a big problem for the NDP party because if they're ever going to form some level of government or become official opposition, they can't have just one seat in Quebec. They've got to have more representation in Quebec, uh, in, Ontario and in Atlantic Canada. And I think that's a bit
4: of a challenge for not only Jagmeet, but for the party. Bob, should they get rid of Jagmeet? Well, I'm going to disagree with John on this one. I think he ran a weak campaign, a negative campaign, and quite frankly, he showed himself to be uninformed, time and time again, on basic issues that he should know as a party uh, leader, right down to structure of government. Instead of going to Parliament when he goes to Ottawa, he ought to go to a poli uh course <laughs> up in Carleton uh, for an afternoon and maybe learn a little bit about the structure of government, because he clearly didn't know it during the election. Look, this guy went from his his surge in mania, sorry to take on the media again here, uh, Libby, but uh, this media-driven uh, uh, campaign went from 19% of the vote last time to 17.7 this time. They spent $10 million last time. They spent $24 million this time. They got 24 seats last time, uh, or 22, I think. They got 24 seats uh, this time. So this is an abject failure by any, any way you uh, rate this politically. And I think this guy, uh, needs to get his act together. I think, it, I think it's one thing to, to do videos on TikTok. I like his videos. They're kind of fun. Uh, and it's another thing to run a country. And I think people decided they wanted somebody to run a country, not a TikTok buffoon.
1: Well, yeah, and I one of the things, and and you might call this sour grapes, but he spent he had these whatever meetups on TikTok videos on TikTok, spent a fortune on social media. He would not give me ten minutes on this show to talk to people who actually go out and vote. There you go. Good point, though. <laughs> Good point, sour grapes. I got it off my chest, and before we go um, uh, another question and that is uh, what about Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada? That was the big surprise that in terms of popular vote, they, they uh, really increased their reach. They, they've got a lot of angry people latching onto them. You know, do, does that have legs? No, no. I think that, uh, you know, if,
2: or however long this minority government uh, stays in effect for, you know, two years or four years. People might be angry for different reasons, but I don't think they're going to be angry. I mean, most of his support coalesced around the vaccine mandate. And I, I think that th- that w- won't necessarily be the issue in two years. And I think that any traction that he may have gotten will be lost because, again, he didn't win his seat. And so it's, I'm not really sure how that party stays together.
5: John? Yeah, listen, I, I think that I, I was very pleased that he didn't win his seat. I think the fact that he was in Saskatchewan on Election Day is indicative of the fact that he probably knew that he wasn't going to win his seat. Um, but I also think, too, that, you know, and I've always said this, and I said this on this program a few times, where, you know, during the election campaign about the election call during the pandemic and how it politicized the pandemic and made it, you know, the, the vacciners, vaccine supporters and anti-vaxxers, uh, a bit more predominant, and gave them a little bit more of a political uh, stage to, uh, to to focus on. I think benefited Maxine Bernier because it gave them, it gave the anti-vaxxers and and a lot of those folks who were anti-government a, a place to be able to park their votes, and and certainly Maxine. Uh, played to that to that uh, area, but I think that was a one-time thing. I just I can't see the PPC has no real uh, uh, purpose or or function other than a, a vain experience for um, a vanity experience for Maxime Bernier. So I can't see it surviving uh, over the next election. But this one, there was an issue that they obviously tapped into and, and got you know the eight hundred thousand votes that they did. But I can't see it surviving beyond beyond
1: this election cycle. Bob, do you agree with that? Because we see a lot of similar things all around the world, and especially next door in the United States. I I tend to agree with Karen on
4: this one in that, you know, I think it's hard to uh, maintain that level of interest and hostility and anger over a three or four year period. And I am hoping that the vaccination debate is over, you know, three years from now. And I think that was a, a huge part of his core this time out. So I think this was probably a banner election for him at four and a half, five percent, whatever he got. I think he'll have uh, trouble maintaining that next time out.
1: Okay. Uh, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much, as always, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Bob Richardson. Thank you Thanks so much, Thanks, guys. Okay, we will talk again soon. Right now, we're taking a break when we come back. Is your dentist vaccinated? Is your hygienist vaccinated? And do you have a right to know
0: when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. Oh, no. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Have you been to the dentist lately? A lot of people have put it off because of the pandemic, and many also think it's time to go back now that vaccination is so widespread. But here's the thing. Dentists don't have to disclose if they or their staff have been vaccinated. According to the Royal College of Dental Surgeons of Ontario, quote, a patient cannot demand this information, and if a patient wishes to avoid or delay booking dental appointments, that's their choice. Well, obviously it is. Now, while that law applies to all health professionals, the Ontario Medical Association, for instance, is encouraging doctors to be transparent, even if they're not legally obliged to do so. So what do you think? Uh, do you know? Would you ask your dentist? 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 4740 And now I'd like to welcome Dr. David Stevenson, who is a past president and chair of the Ontario Dental Association's Pandemic Recovery Working Group. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: I'm glad to be here, Libby. Thank you.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I know that there has been some confusion around the policy. So uh, basically, you're advising uh, your members that they are not required to disclose this to patients who ask. No, we're not really advising our members that they're not required. We're letting them know that. And there's a,
3: you know, there's the, essentially, when you consider the Personal Health Information Protection Act, Everybody has their own different comfort level with this, and and you know, I'm Libby, I'm entirely comfortable telling you right here on the radio that I have been fully vaccinated for quite a while, and I have this conversation routinely with my patients as I've been encouraging them to get vaccinated, but I can't share that information about my staff with you on the radio. So I think, you know, patients have, I I understand entirely how this is, this can be an important issue to patients and uh, they can have this conversation with their dentist. But uh, not all dentists uh, may feel comfortable sharing that information, and certainly they may not feel comfortable sharing that information with their staff. But I think this it, you need to have a conversation, uh, and you need to have the conversation about the safety of going to dental offices. You know, dental offices, we've been open for throughout the, with the exception of the very beginning of the pandemic, we've been open throughout the entire pandemic and treating our patients and with quite an extensive degree of care that's much needed. And, and, and treating them safely. Uh, and that will continue. We've got very strict protocols in place. But I understand, you know, your initial question is, this is a difficult conversation to have. And uh, I think patients, they will ask their dentists that. But the law does not require, does not give everybody to the right. It doesn't even give us the right to know the vaccination status of our own patients.
1: Uh, okay, your patients. One thing, what about your staff?
3: Um, do I, uh, is it, is it, am I required to know the vaccination status? Well, of you're my not. Staff?
1: But, but how do you handle that? Obviously, you're not required to, uh, but, uh, how are you handling that? I mean, I'm sure as with everywhere else, there are staff people who don't want to be vaccinated, uh, hopefully not many of them.
3: Yeah, no, and that's that's a good point. And, you know, with the Ontario Dental Association, right at the very early stages, back in January, we advocated very strongly to help dentists and their staff, assistants, receptionists, hygienists, have early access to the vaccine, not first in line, but very close in line once it, uh, it you know, came next in line from the frontline workers. So we worked really hard, not just to get them uh, earlier access to the vaccinations, but also to help facilitate that by coordinating with the public health units that were actually administering the vaccinations. And that's when we found out that there was going to be some difficult conversations. And we do have resources for our members to help you have that sort of conversation with your staff. There's lots of different reasons why some member or a staff member may not wish to get vaccinated or may be uncertain about vaccination. And it's it's a conversation that just can't occur once. It has to occur on numerous different times to, to sort of help people work through this. We know through our surveys that a significant amount number of dentists have been vaccinated, and we know that through helping them get that way. Uh, and their staff as well. Um, so it, it's this is very challenging, the pandemic, for everybody. And, and I think every employer is going to have this difficulty, and dental offices are no different. Well, um, well We're me... doing all we can to give dentists the resources to have that conversation, because we fully support vaccination.
1: Well, l- let me just interject, though. Um, it is a source uh, of irritation for many people that, for instance, even somebody working with frail elders in a nursing home isn't required to be vaccinated. Our hospitals have taken a very strong line. They've said that their people have to be vaccinated by a certain date. uh, And uh, those who aren't, uh, uh, some have already been put on unpaid leave, and they'll be fired if they don't follow through. Uh, Is there anything like that contemplated? Or what do you do if you have staff who don't want to be vaccinated? Are they just continuing to work with the public?
3: Yeah, the, you know, there's, there's different vaccination policies that can be in place. Our our provincial government through directive number six, the chief medical officer of health has, has mandated a vaccination policy and our college has strongly recommended that dentists uh, follow a policy similar to that, even though we're not directly affected by directive number six. Uh, the Ontario Dental Association is a member of the Canadian Dental Association and we fully support the Canadian Dental Association's advocacy for mandating vaccine for all dental uh healthcare workers. So yeah you, know, you know, can we make the rules? Can we make the laws? No we can't. Can no, we but strongly you strongly can... encourage our members to get vaccinated and, and help their staff get vaccinated? Yes we can.
1: That's well so we yeah, aren't. but but you can do what hospitals are doing. Um, hospitals in this province and elsewhere who uh, are basically um, showing staff the door if they aren't.
3: Yeah you're again, we're an association. We're not an individual employer. And uh, individual employers, like individual dental offices, some dental offices do have vaccine mandates in place. Um, And there has to be, when you think of a vaccine mandate for either proof of vaccination or else protocols to go in place for if you are not vaccinated, those also have to be facilitated with that vaccine policy. But, you know, if we're getting right back to how it's, to be safe and I think that's what everyone needs to really this is where the comfort level has to come into you need to feel safe and uh, you know Libby I I don't say this lightly uh, dental offices have worked tremendously hard at being safe long before there was vaccines I've been practicing for 35 years I know I have patients that haven't been vaccinated against measles they haven't been vaccinated against polio I, I know that uh, we Regardless of your vaccine status, we will we will treat you and we will continue to treat you
1: extremely safely. Okay, let's take a call from Terry in Niagara Falls. Hi, Terry. Hi. Um, I would just want to make a comment about my
6: experience with my dental office. And uh, the day before my appointment, they called to find out whether I had been double vaccinated. And when I said yes and I had no COVID symptoms, I was allowed to come in for my appointment. So I said to the receptionist, I said, okay, you've asked me my status. I'm curious, what is the status of the staff here? She said, oh, everybody's been double vaccinated. I said, fine. So I went into my appointment to my dental hygienist, and he volunteered uh, at the beginning of the appointment that he had his one shot, and he refused to get the second shot. He said, it's a hoax. He says, this is ridiculous. He says, nobody can force me to do this. So I just looked at him, and I said, oh, I took off the bib, and I said, thank you very much, and I walked out. And he said to me, he says, where are you going? And I said, you've made your decision. You've made your choice. I'm making mine. I said, I have reasons why I need to keep myself safe. And I said, and I don't feel safe with you working this close to me in case you don't have the proper protocols.'" So I went to the front desk, told the girl. She was shocked because she had made the appointment for all the staff to get their vaccinations. He did not disclose that he did not have the second shot. Um, the dentist got involved. They rescheduled my appointment for another hygienist who was double vaccinated. And when I went back for that appointment, I found out that the first one was no longer working at that office.
1: Okay, well, um, there you go. I mean, uh, uh Dr Stevenson is telling us that they have protocols and had them in place, and that's true. you know I'm speaking personally, if I had an emergency, you know back in the in the first wave, I would have gone, but otherwise, I would have put it off and at this point, you know there's there's always a risk we saw mm-hmm. numbers last week about the the numbers of infections of COVID in hospitals. And uh, I'm sure most of them had really terrific precautions. I was in hospital. So, I mean, it's like, why take a chance, Dr. Mm -hmm. Stevenson? What do you, you have anything to say to Terry?
3: I, I think the, the situation that she found herself in is extremely unfortunate. And Terry, I, I cannot, I cannot explain that situation, uh, because it was very unfortunate. Yes. The, you know, the, the aspect, the re- one of the reasons why you were asked, uh, the screening questionnaires from the Ministry of Health Come down. That we are obliged to ask all patients is to mm-hmm. screen for the the potential exposure of COVID. So e- even if you were to have answered no to the first question, uh, or say I did not want to answer that question on vaccination, it just led us to some other questions to ask, just to place where your exposure risk may be. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that uh, one of the protocols that. Uh, Dare I say that dental offices have not really had an advantage, but we've been had this priority over we, in screening our patients. If you're going to a hospital with COVID, the hospital has to see you. The hospital has to treat you. That's what hospitals are for. Mm-hmm. One of the main reasons why dental offices, I, I firmly believe that we've done a very good job, and there has been no cases of COVID. 19 transferred due to related dental treatment yet that we know of. But so that's part of the reason for screening a patient. If there is the risk of exposure of COVID-19 or the patient has symptoms or has COVID-19, then we really are to limit that to emergency care or urgent care only, sometimes even through teledentistry. So we have that, we have that prerogative to try and make sure to keep Are not just our patients safe, but our environment safe, Doctor Stevenson? I don't, I don't think she objected. I can't explain that. I can't.
1: Uh, I don't think she objected to to being asked those things. I think uh, it was the other part of it, right, Terry? No, basically, uh, yeah, yeah. Libby, I have no answer.
6: Again, it it wasn't a question of me asking him specifically. Um, He happened to volunteer that information himself.
1: Okay, Terry. Thank you for sharing that story. All right, thank you. Okay. Dr. David Stevenson, thank you so much for uh, clarifying those procedures. I appreciate your time.
3: No, uh, very, um, it was very helpful, Libby. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, we're going to take another break, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk to my dentist and see where she stands on all of this. And uh, the numbers to call: four one six three six zero zero seven forty, toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Would you ask your dentist? Uh, and uh, would you uh, do you would you go if? you know, the hygienist or somebody there was not vaccinated, would you uh, have your procedure? Give us a shout. And we'll be back with Dr. Sarah Hansen uh, when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we're
1: talking about going to the dentist in the time of COVID. I know that a lot of people put it off uh, and maybe thinking this is time to go back. And uh, I have to admit when I heard about the directive, and I know this to be true, that Dentists don't have to disclose. We know that's that's the law. Uh, I wasn't that happy, but when I got in touch with my own dentist, she got back to me right away, con- confirming that she and her staff had the jab. Uh, I want to hear from you. What do you think about all this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 And Dr. Sarah Hansen joins me now. Hi. Hello, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, uh, first of all, um, how many of your patients actually ask you this? I would say there are a growing number of
7: patients who are interested in knowing, and I've had the talk with my staff, and, and they feel very comfortable disclosing that they have been vaccinated. So we've been telling people, I mean, it's, um, I'm fortunate to have a staff that uh, just, we had conversations about this earlier in 2020, um, as sort of, as the vaccines were starting to come out in 2021. And so we were, discussing the science of it. And there was a little bit less hesitancy, especially as a large part of the world was sort of getting the vaccine and and there was good results with it. So I've been lucky in, in that my staff has been all vaccinated and people are interested. We'll see if that becomes something that we need to disclose or if it's just going to be a personal decision for offices
1: oh yeah right now it's a it 's a personal decision, so you 're saying that you had some staff who were initially hesitant but came around
7: yeah, so I think in the earlier part of the year we we just weren 't quite sure if uh if this was the thing for everyone. Everyone was sort of uh, having their ear to the ground, and we talked about the science of it about how. Different vaccines do different things. There was this concern about, uh, mRNA and it's a, it's a mystery sometimes what that means. And we tried to sort of schematically break it down and this is, it's almost like a cookbook. It tells your body what to do, you know, and the other one's like, you know, it's a different kind of vaccine, the AstraZeneca, you know, so we just sort of discussed just how they're formed and that mystery came out of it a little bit. And I think that made people a little bit more comfortable.
1: What about uh, when you deal with patients? Do you uh, what kind of screening do you do with them?
7: All patients have been getting a COVID questionnaire right uh, two hours before their appointment. It gets sent to them, and it's just gone through all the checklist of you know do you have any of these sort of COVID related questions. Now more recently, I think um, our Ontario Dental Association has uh, also added into their. Um we t- we've taken out that part about have you traveled in the last 14 days out of Canada as a route question. And we've added it more as a just secondary question of have you been vaccinated. And if you have been vaccinated, then it's okay to have traveled in the last 14 days. You don't have to self-isolate. But it's more in relation to that question of, um, you know, if you should be in isolation, we need to just discuss that issue if you haven't been vaccinated and it's more of a sort of a health question if uh if you're at risk for having covid we we want to know that a little bit more
1: would your life be easier if this was mandated by the government Uh
7: if it was mandated that we ask everybody you know that, that you
1: vaccinate
7: that our office vaccinates yeah it uh it may have made life easier but um it's it's one of those things that it's uh, it's life becomes a little bit limited in so many other ways when there's a vaccine passport. So, I feel like people want to get vaccinated, you know, and just to have a freer life. Um, I think I think it would be a very difficult situation for offices to be in if their staff weren't getting vaccinated. So, I, I, perhaps that would help the staff make up their mind a little bit more quickly. Let's Let it, yeah.
1: let's take a call from Jack in uh, Port Port Coburn. Is it? Yes, it is. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hey, hi, Jack.
8: Uh, hi, uh, I'm calling uh, in regards to to my daughter-in-law who works for a dentist, and and he absolutely believes this is a hoax. Oh wow! He, re- he refuses. Absolutely refuses to get jabbed. So, and most of his staff have had the. Uh, vaccination and my daughter in law, she's livid. She's looking for another job, but she's been there well over twenty years. And they're warning patients that come in, uh, you know, you want to consider uh this thoughtfully uh about uh having a dentist uh you know provide you a medical service and he refused and a lot of them did like the, one of the previous callers, they just pack up and go. No, we're we're gonna find another dentist. So you know I I think all dentists should be compelled if you want to continue your practice, you should be compelled to get vaccinated. Actually, everybody in Ontario should be obligated. Everybody. And if you don't and you you get sick, to me, you should go on the, on the bottom of the list when it comes time to get treatment.
1: Well, what that's... People
8: been deb- double vaccinated or treated before you. You've been too pig-headed and stupid you know, to not want to get vaccinated. You think you're entitled to go... Beyond, 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 beyond above somebody else that uh, has followed the protocol?
1: Well, that's that's, that's n- not the way they triage, but Jack, uh, that's really uh, pretty uh, eye-opening, your story, and thank you so much for telling us about that. Um, <laughs> Dr. Hansen, I mean, I've, th- where it's, it's the dentist who doesn't want to be vaccinated while his staff do, I mean, yeah. wow. That's unfortunate. Yeah. It's. Do? It's. Uh, do you know of uh, dentists who have? I mean, I'm assuming that at the height of the pandemic, before the vaccines were widespread, there were probably a lot of people who just put off their dental appointments.
7: There were a lot of people who put it off, and uh, and I think just as our precautions went up, and we really reached a point where we're. Filtering our air like 40 times per hour in each room, everything is, has has gotten so much safer, uh, just air wise in our space. Um, people started coming back a little bit more, but definitely once the vaccines really were sort of covering everybody, uh, everyone just felt a lot safer. Uh-
1: and uh again so you have more and more people who are asking the question now of your staff. We do.
7: Yeah, and it's uh and people ask it sort of uh it, with some hesitation, but um I I we welcome the question and I think we're we're very transparent about it. I think it would make it would make the decision easier for people just to if they're slightly more hesitant to come to to get their teeth looked at and cleaned and just back on their regular schedule it would make it a little bit easier i think for, for for everyone if um if if they knew that we were vaccinated
1: i think it absolutely it it does um and uh you know i also found it interesting that you know the ontario medical association is encouraging the transparency uh, your association isn't exactly
7: well we'll see. I guess everything is everything is changing.
1: By the day. Uh so um you have more precautions, you're filtering your air and everybody in your office is vaccinated. I mean that seems like a pretty good start.
7: Yeah. Yeah, we've been wearing the N ninety fives and face shields for over a year now and uh we've gotten used to that. We run our office a little cooler just so we don't boil too much, but uh
1: we've managed. Yeah, it it seems uh those N95s uh other medical workers have them too. I wouldn't want to be in one of those all day long. Um is there anything you'd like to leave us with, Dr. Hanson?
7: I'm I'm just happy that things are gradually um you know, just opening up more in terms of the vaccination rate going up. It's, it's, it's creating a safer environment for everybody. I'm, I'm very encouraged.
1: Okay. Dr. Sarah Hansen from Mercer Street Dentistry, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Libby. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.